Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Step right up and prepare to be unsettled. Our dark team of travelers has left behind their safe reality. Behind the walls and in the catacombs of Castle Danielson to lead you into the darkness. There will be no escape and there will be no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. We join our intrepid anti-heroes on the road as they guide you through these twisted worlds of the most disturbed imagination. This mission is going to be very... What? We We can't hear you! I said this is going to be a very delicate mission and will require... Jeez, GM. No reason to yell. Good heavens. (laughs) 
What I was trying to say was, this will be a very delicate mission and will require finesse. What was that you said about finesse, Jim? Will you please? Aww. Listen carefully, both of you. We are almost there. Now, Megan Meehan is our author for this episode, and it is her birthday. So you two will dress in these delivery uniforms, and ring her doorbell and claim to have a delivery for her special day. Then lead her to the van, where I will constrain her long enough for you to extract the most fearsome stories she has in her terrifying imagination. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Uh, yeah. Uh, where did you find a delivery uniform in his size? Oh, just take them and get ready. All right, all looks quiet. Gee, I sure hope she's home. Yeah, me too. This is gonna be a really short show. Oh, hello boys. What can I do for you? Are you Miss Megan Meehan? Why, yes. Oh, are you guys a singing telegram? I've always wanted to get a singing telegram. Uh, well, not exactly. Um, why, yes! We are a singing telegram. Uh, sent for your birthday. What? Uh, I always wanted to be a singing telegram delivery man. Oh, come on. Wait. I thought you wanted to be a dentist. Excuse me, fellas. I really have to be going soon. I am working on my first novella, called Sycophant, through Priestess and Hierophant Press. It's a horror tale that tells the story of a woman who is possessed by a demon that is both the bane of her life and her treasured protector. It is due for release in 2018. Oh, 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 hang on, Miss Meehan. Huh? What? What? Uh, no way. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, you love to write horror, and your teeth are white too, and many more. Okay, well, thank you guys for that weird but sweet birthday song. Oh, wait, uh... We also happen to have a birthday gift as well in our van over there. You mean that van that looks like something a serial killer from the 1970s would drive? Uh, yeah. That would be the one. Oh, sure. I can't wait to see what it is. Wow, that was too easy. Well, here you go. <laughs> Aha! Crap, she knows karate! <clears throat> oh, karate nothing! That's Muay Thai! 
It certainly ain't ballroom dancing. Oh, oh man. Oh, what do I do? Well, for starters, you can stop her from kicking our... Assistance is what we need, Archie. Do something. Okay. Oh, oh, here it is. Archibald, what have you done? You've tased our featured author. Well, well, she went all Tony John on you guys. What the hell else was I supposed to do? Well, it kind of worked out. At least she's cooperative now. Yes, but no, never mind. Just help me get her into the van. <laughs> uh, how was I supposed to know we aren't supposed to immobilize the author with anti-personnel devices? Eureka! There it is. The amygdala. You see, boys, the amygdala communicates fear responses throughout the brain and is responsible for directing the flight or fight, freeze, fright, and faint response in mammals. Wow, GM, you sure do know a lot about the human brain. And just to think, there was actually a use for all those interns' brains I just shoved down the garbage disposal. Go figure. Now, to unfurl the fear from Megan Meehan, as we explore her world of mayhem and monsters. Let us begin with a story about two good old boys who were meaning no harm. All were they. As these two reprise a traditional seasonal practice skirting the law and endangering innocent lives, they experience a coming-of-age adventure that they will tell their grandchildren about, if they make it out alive at all. The one-man carnival freak show that is Jesse Cornett endeavors to become the hunted in decoy. Earl's voice was overpowered by the resounding boom that echoed through the trees. In the span of one hour, he had wasted four bullets shooting at squirrels that were too fast for him. Earl hated to waste bullets since they cost money, something he held in exceptionally high regard. I thought I had that one. I gotta get something before this day's over. To Earl's side, Rob looked around anxiously. Technically, they were still on campgrounds. The section of the park where visitors were permitted to set up RVs, picnic, and barbecue. Hunting was strictly prohibited in this area, but Earl didn't seem to care. The legal hunting grounds were over three miles away, much deeper into the woods. And Earl wasn't fond of walking. Besides... It had rained earlier that morning, and he was not keen on getting his brand new Eddie Bauer boots soaking wet. 
Rob wasn't exactly comfortable hunting so close to the campsites, but it was late November, not midsummer, and the number of campers had dwindled considerably. Still, all it would take would be one stray bullet and one very unlucky bystander to land both him and Earl in serious trouble. The kind of trouble that could earn them both prison sentences. Come on, let's go check the salt lake. Earl resumed his clumsy stride, stomping through the thick underbrush as if he was Godzilla strolling through a city. Rob started to protest. Well, I don't know. If we get something, I'll give you most of it. Lord knows you need it more than I do. Earl had done well for himself. He had come up in the world as the owner of a successful loan business, and he raked in over $200,000 a year. A fact he'd never let Rob or anyone else forget. Earl took every chance he got to flaunt his wealth or comment on Rob's less privileged circumstances. Occasionally, it grated on Rob, but not nearly as much as most people would expect. He and Earl had come from similarly middle-class backgrounds, and they had known each other since they were kids. In fact, they had met at a summer camp located not too far away from the woods that they now hunted in. As they grew up, Earl had sought wealth and power and college degrees. Rob was content merely to graduate high school and embraced a simple blue-collar existence as an exterminator. The profession might never make him rich, but paid the bills. Still, securing a hunk of deer meat would be like getting a week's worth of free dinner, and Rob wasn't fool enough to refuse that. He followed behind Earl, listening to him cursing nature and wildlife. His mood only got worse when they snuck up to the salt lick, devices Earl frequently used as decoys to entice deer into the crosshairs of his gun, and saw not as much as a fawn. Dagnabbit! Earl slammed his fist into the soggy earth. He was not a man regaled for his even temperament. What in blazes is going on out here today? That's my best salt lick, and those stupid things are supposed to love salt. Maybe they're on to us. Oh, shut up. They're dumb animals. They don't know nothing about anything. Rob shrugged, but said nothing. He wasn't fond of animals, but he had studied behaviors in pests like rats and mice, and, although he annihilated them without pause, he had to admit that they probably were a lot cleverer than most people believed. Earl guzzled water from his canteen and then rested his beady eyes on Rob. You better not be turning crazy like that Packer woman. <laughs> it's not funny. The only reason that woman's still alive is because murder is illegal. I swear, if you start going down her road, I'll shoot you dead. It'll be a mercy killing. Fair enough. Remember the Packer woman hates me more than you. I'm an exterminator and she picked it outside my house for Christ's sake. Merrill Packer was an ardent animal rights activist who made it her mission to pester anyone who so much as ate hamburgers. Over the years, Rob, the town's sole exterminator, had become her main target, but it was Earl who was her true nemesis. Even though Merrill frequently annoyed Rob, he was usually able to shrug her behavior off, or, if it got really bad, threatened to call the police. Earl, however, 
never back down from a fight. Two years ago, Merrill had made the mistake of scolding Earl for killing God's creatures when she found him fishing in the local lake. Ever since then, Earl had taken every opportunity to insult her and rail against her. He had even admitted to Rob that every time he killed something, he imagined that it was Merrill. Rob knew the feeling. He often fantasized that the rats he poisoned were actually his ex-wife, Darlene, and her whole crazy family. Rob rubbed the back of his neck, which was stiff after a whole day trekking through the woods. Heck, his back and legs and arms were stiff too. By now, the sun was starting to set, and he was aching to get home. And we better pick that salt lick up and head on back. No! It's not even half dark yet. Deer come out in the evening, and I'm waiting right here until I get one. Rob surrendered and settled into the underbrush, trying to make himself as comfortable as possible. Looking at Earl, no one would ever suspect how stubborn he could be or how much of a bloodlust he had. Earl enjoyed killing. He didn't do it as much for sport or food as he did just for the sheer power of deciding if something would live or die. Rob reckoned that Earl had some kind of fixation with power. That was probably why he had strived so hard to become a business owner, to have control over his workers. Yet, power obviously didn't make Earl happy. He was actually the angriest man Rob had ever met. Of course, he would probably be perpetually angry, too, if he was cooped up in a sterile office all day long. He remembered what Earl had confided on one hunting trip. Yeah, most of the people on my job are rich kids from Silver Spoon-type families. They all view me as being inherently beneath them, even though I'm their boss. They never even offer to buy me coffee. How's that for a lack of respect? Rob strongly assumed that most of the people at Earl's job were afraid of him. In fact, most folks were. Rob was the sole exception and the only person Earl ever willingly hung around with. That was an irony in and of itself. Back in their younger years, Rob had been the troublemaker. He had started drinking in his late teens and had ended up in barroom brawls and in and out of jail throughout his 20s. Earl had never visited him in jail nor paid his bail. Still, whenever Rob got out, Earl hadn't shunned him. Earl viewed Rob as beneath him, and that was precisely why he liked him. He enjoyed having the upper hand, the clean record. Earl was a bully, but a silent and insidious one, mean as poison. Earl liked causing mayhem, and, to a lesser degree, so did Rob. In essence, they were friends because they both hated most of the townspeople. They both liked hunting, and they both had no other friends or family who would speak to them. In short, they fed off of each other's dysfunction. Earl loved tormenting Darlene just as much as Rob did, mostly because Earl was mad at women in general. Ladies would go out with Earl, but only to use him to get free dinners. Over time, he had become disdainful of women and a self-professed lifelong bachelor. Rob honestly wouldn't be all that surprised if his friend eventually turned into a serial killer. Now nearing 40, Rob had been off the booze and out of fights for the better part of a decade, which was especially lucky for Merrill Packer, who he probably would have shot down dead in his younger, hazier days. 
As Rob lay in the woody underbrush, an hour ticked by. Then another. No deer came, but the sky got darker and darker. Come on, let's go. We have to get rid of that salt lake. I don't want another fine. No! Rob felt his temper rising. He and Earl had been fined on their last hunting misadventure after a park ranger discovered them using duck decoys and calls to entice mallards in a strictly no-hunting zone. The judge had fined the two men equally, but Earl had insisted that Rob pay both bills, despite having much less money. He'd shouted and accused, claiming that they were Rob's decoys, not his. The worst part of it all was that they hadn't as much as grazed a single mallard. And we get fined. You're paying both this time. Earl waved his hand dismissively. Shut up! You'll scare the deer! But there were no deer. Ten minutes passed. Fifteen. Twenty. Nothing. Finally, Earl jumped up and kicked a tree stump, shrieking. Dang nabbit! Of all rotten luck! What an everlasting waste of a day! I can't believe this. I'm wasting my time with you. Rob watched Earl's tantrum and wondered how exactly he hadn't yet garnered any kind of record for assault. As he got older, his temper was getting worse. Knowing enough not to say anything contradictory, Rob stood and picked up the untouched salt lick. Come on, let's get going. Earl was armed and very frustrated. When he got frustrated, he got angry. And when he got angry, he was unpredictable. Rob most definitely did not want to come across as combatant or belligerent in any way. He hoped the situation would diffuse itself, and thankfully, it did. Earl gave the tree trunk another hearty kick and then shuffled defeated toward Rob with his eyes downcast. Waste of day! At first, they were sure of where they were going. They had parked Earl's fancy maroon Lexus SUV in the campsite parking lot, which should have been only about four miles away from where they had placed the salt lick. But after 45 minutes of walking deeper and deeper into the forest, they had to admit that they had made a wrong turn somewhere. This doesn't make any sense. We're going north. We're supposed to go north. So why aren't we finding the car? Rob helplessly stared at the old compass his father, a seasoned hunter, had given him. Earl was taking his frustrations out on his cell phone. Piece of crud! I paid good money for this, and now what I need it... The GPS gives up the ghost! The trees are thick here, so they probably block out the signal. Trees shouldn't bother something worth 700 bucks. When we get back in my car, be... Better be there. A lot of the godforsaken hillbillies around here would just love to drive off in it. Rob didn't comment. Earl constantly worried about his expensive car getting stolen. It was almost like an obsession or a paranoid fixation. His extravagant SUV was his pride and joy in a part of America where most people drove around in 10-year-old pickup trucks. Earl especially liked showing it off in the poorer sides of town, 
but whenever people looked at it with envy, he whipped himself into a frenzy, imagining thieves everywhere. We must be going the wrong way. And my top-of-the-line phone can't get a reading, and your old compass is about as useless as an elevator in an outhouse. Come on, let's try this way. Earl brusquely turned to the right and headed down a narrow path. Rob reluctantly followed, unsure what else to do. They got about a quarter mile down the route, when the ground suddenly gave way. As branches cracked and mud slid all around them, the hunters lost their footing and plummeted, screaming, down a rocky embankment. They hit the bottom hard, both of them scratched and bruised and bleeding. You okay? I think so. Uh, uh, nothing's broke. Rob stretched and studied his arms and legs. Relief washed over him when he felt no sharp pains, but then he heard the crunch of something in his pocket. His father's compass was crushed. Earl took one look at the crushed compass and immediately pulled out his iPhone, only to find a cracked screen. Dagnabbit! Relax, you got insurance. Earl had told him all about the insurance when he had boasted about getting the new phone. Screw the phone! Look, this isn't about the phone. We're gonna die out here. It's amazing we survived the fall. When are we- Shut up. Don't you dare tell me- Shh. Don't you hear that? What? Voices. Earl shut his mouth and listened. Further down the road, it certainly sounded like a whole bunch of people were talking, although their words were indecipherable. Rob couldn't even tell if the language was English, but it at least sounded human, which was better than hearing wolves or bears. Earl cocked his finger southward. It's coming from that direction. Rob nodded suspiciously. Sure is. But it doesn't make sense. The campground is the other way. That path leads deeper into the woods. Oh, we don't know that. We got some mixed up walking around these parts that we don't know which way is right or left. I don't know about you, but I trust my ears. With that said, Earl started off down the pathway. Rob followed. He had heard the voices too, and even if the other folks turned out to be lost as well, at least they could share supplies. The hunters walked longer than they had expected to, as evening turned into twilight, hindering visibility. The trees seemed to get thicker on both sides of the increasingly narrow path. Strangely, the further they walked, and the seemingly closer they got, the more the voices died down. Something's not right with this. What do you suggest we do? Turn back? Hang out in the mud overnight? I just don't like... Rob's words trailed off as the pathway suddenly ended and revealed a circular grove in the trees. It was a camp. The campsite wasn't large, but it was laid out well. There was a tent on the right, and an aging blue pickup truck sat on the left. Its rusty sides glimmered in the light of a campfire, 
which blazed amber embers into the center of the grounds. Curiously, a misspelled sign hung from one of the trees leading into the area. It read, Welcome to Camp. Earl chortled when he saw the message, sloppily written in red paint, and with camp misspelled with a K. Someone's not the brightest crayon in the box. Or was it written by a kid? Kids are stupid. Agreed. Where is everyone? It's gotten awful quiet. Hello? Is anybody here? We're lost. We could use some help. They must be out hunting. At this time of night, you can't see anything. It's practically fully dark now. If it wasn't for that fire, I would hardly be able to see my hand in front of my face. Maybe they have those infrared glasses. If they have that kind of money, why is their truck in such rough shape? Don't know, don't care. It's getting cold. I'm gonna see if I have some blankets in the tent. You check the truck and see if there's a phone or a walkie-talkie or something in it to call park rangers. Rob gulped. His stomach was tied in knots of dread. It was an instinctual fear that he couldn't quite pinpoint the basis of, but there was a basic wrongness about the current situation. I don't like this. Neither do I. One day we'll look back on this and spit. Come on, let's at least get some supplies. I could use some grub. Earl and Rob stepped into the campsite. The hairs on the back of Rob's neck immediately stood up. He was sure that he saw movement between the trees out of the corners of his eyes. He quickly turned his head, but saw nothing but stillness and shadows. I'm going crazy. He approached the old truck. First he checked the back bed. Nothing was there but fallen leaves. Then he went around to the driver's side door and peeked in the window. His nervousness rapidly intensified when he saw the dusty conditions of the interior. No one's been in this thing for years. On impulse, he grabbed the door handle and pulled. To his great surprise, the door yanked open. At that very moment, Earl screamed. Rob whizzed around just in time to see the tent being pulled upwards, his friend imprisoned in its center. Rob instantly realized that the tent was actually a net, suspended by ropes set high in the trees. It's a trap! He wanted to run, but his legs felt like jelly. Then he lost his balance and fell backwards into the truck. As soon as the weight of his body hit the front seat, the door slammed shut and locked, caging him. His efforts were fruitless. The door and glass were much stronger than they looked. Rob was suddenly keenly and uncomfortably aware that he probably looked just like the raccoons and possums he frequently trapped. 
clawing at the walls and hollering without a prayer of escape. Despite the griminess of the window, he could see Earl struggling in the tent net, screaming loud enough to wake the dead. They had been lured here, enticed by food and shelter, the way mousetraps lured mice with cheese. This is a decoy. The whole thing was a setup. Rob's horrified mind immediately conjured up images of serial killers and homicidally territorial backwoods hillbillies. Then, he noticed figures emerging from the forest. There was a whole tribe of them, about a dozen in total, tall and hairy creatures that walked like men but resembled apes, females and children among them. Most carried spears or guns, objects probably taken from past human victims. All of the creatures were looking excitedly from the car to the tent, visibly pleased to have caught two prime pieces of prey. They chatted to each other in an odd dialect. Their speech patterns and voices sounded vaguely human, but their tones and actual words were much more guttural, much more prehistoric sounds. Rob had never seen anything like them before, but he knew exactly what they were. Sasquatch. Earl had always claimed that animals were stupid, and for the most part, Rob agreed with him. But there was an undeniable intelligence about these creatures. An awful humanness. These creatures clearly weren't, but they looked and sounded vaguely human. And they could obviously plan out traps and use tools and weapons. Perhaps they couldn't understand human language, but they could mimic words like welcome and camp well enough to bring the game in. You're dreaming. This can't be happening. Calm down. Rob scolded himself as he watched the tribe gather under the tent net in which Earl was suspended. If these things really existed, there would be more pictures, evidence, proof. They're nothing but legends. But hadn't a few of these creatures been caught on camera over the years? The fact that people had refused to believe in them was unfortunate since the proof had been there for years. Heck, Bigfoot had become a pop culture icon. Whatever they are, they're thriving. They all looked healthy, and at least one of the females was noticeably pregnant. Several of the small ones, the children, were hopping around excitedly as they pointed up at the tent. Its fabric was wiggling wildly in the air, illustrating Earl's desperate struggles. Suddenly, one of the creatures, a big, youngish-looking male, the Alpha, sliced through the rope that held the tent in place. It promptly crashed to ground. Oh, 
Rob winced as he heard Earl's wail of pain emanate from somewhere inside the cloth. He must have fallen at least 16 feet. The Sasquatch lunged at the tent straight away and tore at the material, eager to reveal Earl. Confined inside the truck, Rob clearly saw the entire horrible scene illuminated in the light of the fire. Earl had broken his leg in the fall. He was bleeding and whimpering, and when he saw the creatures, he bawled and tried to run. His face was a mask of misery and fear, and his pained gait was pitiful to watch. Yet the Sasquatch showed no mercy. Most of them pointed and laughed at Earl's pathetic getaway attempt. The sight made Rob swell with fear. Whatever these things were, they were cruel. They could have ended things quickly for Earl, but they obviously had no intention of doing any such thing. To Rob's revulsion, the Alpha handed two of the little ones spears and pointed toward Earl, encouraging them. The young ones rushed at it. Earl shrieked again, his eyes huge and agonizingly petrified, as the young descended upon his downed body and stabbed him repeatedly. Blood spewed. Earl flailed his arms and kicked his legs, still struggling for survival, even in his final throes of death. What kind of thinking species would let kids see something like that? Let alone do it. Then he remembered that his father had taken him out hunting before he was old enough to walk to the store alone. He had made his first kill, a squirrel, when he was seven, and his father had taught him how to skin the body and cook the meat right then and there. It had been a brutal and bloody experience, but it had also been exciting and thrilling. How many times had he and Earl laughed at the fear in some deer's eyes or their injured gait just before they administered the final blow? How many times had they bonded or had a laugh or enjoyed themselves amid another creature's pain and fear and suffering? Two of the adult female Sasquatch started undressing Earl's body. They carefully folded the clothing, saving the fabric to use as tents or blankets, no doubt, and then started to carve up his flesh. Rob was sickened as they jammed bits of Earl's thigh onto sticks and roasted them over the fire. Apparently, Sasquatch like their meat cooked, just like their prey. 
No. No. While the females prepared Earl's remains, the young and a handful of adult males started making their way to the truck where Rob was being held prisoner. Sobbing in fear, Rob hopelessly tried to hold the door shut to keep them out, knowing it was a losing battle even before they flung him out onto the dirt and stabbed the life out of him. The last sounds Rob heard was the guttural language and hiss-like laughter. His final thought was that maybe, just maybe, Merrill Packer had a point after all. Smokey the Bear says, Only you can prevent violent Bigfoot encounters. Hmm, Smokey, I hate to say it, but don't quit your day job. Uh, that's That's right. Uh, back to the forest with you. Leave the announcing to the professionals. <laughs> When we return from this short break, we will continue this weirdness from the mind of Megan Meehan. Beginning Monday, July 10th, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights will be launching the second season of Evil Idol. Rest assured, folks, this contest is no joke. New this year is a cash prize for the winner and the first three runners-up. Beginning Monday, July 10th. Evil Idol. This next fair will be a delight for those who choose to believe that the truth is out there. As we join an over-the-road truck driver for his nighttime journey, he struggles to escape the throes of sleep during his extended long haul. He has seen everything during his long treks on the road, but nothing can prepare him for what is to come. And he learns the horrifying reality about what truly is out there. Master storyteller Otis Jiry gets behind the wheel in Revelation. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. The night was clear and cloudless, enabling the moon to illuminate the winding country road that was otherwise devoid of light. Reese Hanlon had been driving for over 19 hours, the past six of which had been spent navigating narrow backwoods roads. It was difficult to steer an 18-wheel truck along such narrow lanes, and by the time Reese emerged onto a mainline highway, he was undeniably exhausted. He easily could have pulled over and checked into one of the many cheap motels that were situated right off the highway, but Reese didn't believe in staying in hotels. He didn't like the idea of checking into any place, since that would make it so much easier for them to find him. Reese knew all about them. The invaders, the aliens, the extraterrestrials. And that was precisely why they were out to get him. At first, the signs had been subtle, almost unnoticeable. He repeatedly caught every red light on the roads. He got pulled over for speeding, twice. He found it increasingly difficult to drive at night because lights seemed brighter and blurrier than they ever had before. At first, these things seemed all like coincidences. It wasn't until he started hearing the buzzing in his ears that he realized every little misfortune was connected. The invaders were onto him. They were after him. Reese had first started to seriously suspect the invasion when he was in his mid-teens. He would stand out in the woods behind his childhood home and stare up at the planes going by. Well, what everybody assumed were planes. Reese's father had always suspected something more sinister, and soon Reese began to see his point of view. After all, many of those planes did have odd shapes, Otherworldly shapes. Reese's father didn't trust the U.S. government. In fact, he didn't trust governments anywhere. Governments were full of power-hungry men who were the precise kinds of people that highly advanced aliens could easily manipulate. Politicians were corruptible and undependable. 
The police were the same way as were judges and military personnel. Any and all authority figures were individuals to be scrutinized. After all, they had even gone so far as to cover up the events of Area 51. Mitch, Reese's father, had spent his final years living in constant fear of abduction. He knew all the stories about the unfortunate souls who had been beamed up into space, never to be seen or heard from again, and he was determined to avoid such a fate. Mitch barricaded himself into his ramshackle house and packed a pistol whenever he dared to venture outside. Mostly, he sat in his favored ragged armchair and drank whiskey morning, noon, and night. He had finally succumbed to liver failure at the age of 44 when Reese was 19. No one had been surprised by Reese's father's death. Mitch had been drinking himself silly for years, getting really bad after his wife left him for a used car salesman when Reese was only three. Most people took his warnings about aliens to be the ravings of a lunatic, and at first, Reese had felt the same. As a preteen, he had been resentful of and embarrassed by his father's behavior, but now, as he approached forty, he understood his father more and more, since he had slowly but surely started to see the same patterns of insidious invasion that the old man had. Reese yawned and surveyed the roadside. He was thick in the woods of West Virginia now, surrounded by the mountains and hills that encompassed coal miner territory. It was a world in which Reese was familiar. He had been born in Appalachian country, and his father and uncles had all been coal miners, as were many of his cousins. Reese had been the one male member of his family to escape such a fate. He liked trucking for a number of reasons, but most of all, since it was a profession that didn't require men to burrow down into the bowels of the earth until their lungs were blackened and rotted. The road he was on had a scenic lay-by. Reese pulled over and parked the truck. It was already after midnight, and even though most truckers drove straight through the wee hours, he was too sleepy to go any further. He gazed up at the sky suspiciously. He knew that the UFOs were flying around above, lurking. He had disabled his GPS system and his phone to stop the invaders from constantly monitoring him, but they always seemed to follow him regardless. They were bound to have access to advanced space-age technology, after all, and he supposed that they had already put a tracking device somewhere on his truck. They were determined to destroy him, and he didn't have a clue how to protect himself. Heck, he couldn't even decipher which planet they were from, although he strongly assumed that they were visitors from a different galaxy altogether. Reese climbed into the back of the truck's spacious cab and lay down, attempting to sleep. He tried to ignore the ever-present buzzing in his head and remained acutely alert for any sounds that might indicate spying aliens. 
He was keenly aware of the creaking of the surrounding trees and the low wail on the wind. He was also reminded of the many mines that most of his kin had spent their lives toiling in, especially, and most notoriously, Uncle Harlan. Reese supposed that his Uncle Harlan had a lot to do with why he had aimed at doing something different with his life. Reese's daddy had been a drunk, but Uncle Harlan, his daddy's half-brother, he was outright crazy. Most folks assumed it was on account of all the dust and gas that he had inhaled while digging deep into the earth. Or maybe there were just faulty genes in a bloodline. But Harland had well and truly snapped before he reached the age of 30. Harland's downfall had begun when he had gotten trapped under the earth after a mine collapsed. For two and a half days he had endured the damp and dark although he was one of the lucky ones since he had eventually been rescued. Many other miners had not. In fact, some of the bodies had never even been found. From the time that he was rescued, Harlan hadn't been right in the head. He constantly ranted and raved about monsters under the earth. He called them mole people and swore that they had been the reason behind the cave-in. He also claimed that they had attacked and eaten several of the other miners. Harland insisted that he had been the sole survivor simply because he had remained motionless, playing dead while buried under a pile of rock and mud. Them things had sharp claws and teeth, he had stated repeatedly. I could hear them moving all around me, scratching at the walls and making high-pitched whining sounds and low growling noises and the screams I could hear the screams of the other men as those things tore into their flesh about a week after the cave-in inspectors had descended into the mine and searched for evidence of carnage in all of the accessible passageways truthfully the inspectors had been nervous If there was evidence of gore, then it was likely that Harland had suffered a psychotic break and had murdered his fellow miners. Sometimes the harsh working conditions and the earth's gases damaged men's minds. Back in 1923, a man had slaughtered eight of his fellow miners. Just enough body parts had been found to have him hanged for murder. That miner had blamed monsters, just as Harlan did, all the way to the gallows. When the inspectors found no trace of flesh or blood, Harland had been declared insane and spent the rest of his life in the state psychiatric center. Mercifully doped up on medication, it helped him forget whatever he thought he had seen. Reese hadn't visited his uncle or known much about him, but he got quite a kick out of the stories concerning Harlan's delusions. Mole people. Could anything be more laughable? When he had first heard the term, he had been seven years old, and immediately envisioned people with gross skin conditions, not horrifying monsters. When he was a teenager, he had stumbled across a tacky B-list movie from 1956 titled The Mole People, 
and he had laughed all the way through it, wondering what crazy old Uncle Harland would have made of its scenes of men in mole masks digging themselves up and out of the ground. Of course, there were real mole people. Reese knew that term was sometimes used to describe the homeless in New York City who took shelter in defunct subway tunnels. But West Virginia was a long way from New York, and the creatures that Harlan thought he had seen were definitely not human. Reese jumped. He was always extra sensitive to noise when he was about to go to sleep. He could never be too careful. Ground-dwelling monsters were a ludicrous fantasy, but interterrestrials, nah, they were a force to be reckoned with. He held his breath and listened carefully for sounds of ray guns or strange languages transmitting over the radio, but there was nothing but the hoot of the owl and the trees swaying in the breeze. Normal sounds, earthly sounds. Reassured, Reese exhaled and fell into a turbulent slumber. He rarely slept well. Every night he was plagued by nightmares of spacecrafts and probing devices, unknown planets and little green men. However, this night was particularly bad. First, he dreamed of a group of four abducted people floating in midair. When they turned towards him and tried to scream in agony... Their heads started shaking so violently that their features became indistinguishable until each individual face disappeared, morphing into twisted and tormented blurs. Obviously, these unlucky victims were having a superbly negative reaction to whatever weird chemicals the aliens had pumped into them during their ungodly experiments. Suddenly, the dream switched tracks and Reese found himself standing in a dilapidated auditorium with peeling paint on the walls and one single dull light bulb illuminating the bleak room. Before him stood an aged wooden stage with blackened and tattered drapes pulled askew to the right side. A faceless man in a dark suit and bowler hat stood on the dais beside a noose which hung from the ceiling and served as the stage single macabre prop. These figures, which could have been men, monsters, or aliens, stood facing this scene, their backs turned to Reese. These three ominous figures also wore dark suits and bowler hats, and Reese suddenly got the feeling that they were the judge, the mayor, and the sheriff the mining town's three most powerful residents back in 1923, when the homicidal miner had been hanged. Suddenly, the executioner standing on the stage looked up, although his face was nothing but a blank oval, and beckoned to Reese, summoning him toward the noose. Then, high-pitched, nonsensical chatter mingled with snarls and growls filled the air. Three men, monsters, started to turn around. Reese jolted awake, sweating profusely. He checked his watch. It was 3.21 a.m., well before sunrise. There was a familiar and foul coppery taste in his mouth. It was a despicable flavor 
that he had grown accustomed to after waking from nightmares so frequently. Rhys strongly suspected that his chronic night terrors were beamed into his brain courtesy of the invaders. Hence, the bad dreams indicated that the aliens knew where he was, and it was time to get moving. Reese crawled into the front of his cab and looked up at the sky. All he saw were stars and the moon, but there were also strange noises outside, whistles and clicks that sounded a bit like chattering. Although everything looked fine, the sounds could be an alien dialect. Invaders communicating with one another via invisible airways. It was better to be safe than sorry, so Reese started up the truck. He intended to drive through the night and make his destination in Wisconsin by noon. Despite his lingering tiredness, he resolved to meet his schedule and deliver his cargo of canned food early. Then no one could say that he didn't do his job. Reese had a growing suspicion that the aliens had gotten to his boss, his whole company in fact. He had heard whispers in the loading docks between fellow truckers, murmurings that were about him even if not directed towards him. Just fragmented bits of words and phrases that alerted Reese to the fact that most of his co-workers were not on his side, losing his mind, going crazy, something's not right. Seriously wrong with Strange character. Odd duck. Creepy. On and on such denunciations went. Unsurprisingly, his boss appeared to be the ringleader. Reese was getting increasingly nervous about the very real possibility of losing his job, his only source of income. Since his boss, a robust and balding middle-aged man named Frank Finkel, was constantly interrogating him. Frank asked Reese more questions than a game show host. He was particularly interested in knowing if he was feeling all right or if he had been sleeping well. And then there were the comments, the accusations. Frank told Reese that he didn't look too good. He hadn't shaved and hadn't taken on a scruffy appearance. His eyes were red-rimmed, he was jittery and nervous. The worst part of it all was that Frank seemed to enjoy these spiteful conversations, these belittlements. He smirked, not smiled or grinned, but outright mean-spiritedly smirked whenever he interacted with Reese. The cause of Frank's endless debriefings had quickly dawned on Reese. There really was only one suitable explanation. The aliens were mind-controlling poor balding Frank Finkel. They were planting ideas in his head and making him think about firing one of his most efficient long-distance truckers. After all, if Reese was fired, he would soon end up homeless and be even more vulnerable. Reese knew that it was all part of their conspiracy to persecute and ultimately abduct him. Yet, despite the aliens' persistent intentions... They would not take his job, his livelihood, from him. Reese vowed to continue doing his job and doing it well until they finally succeeded in either killing him or beaming him up into space. Determined to foil the alien's wicked scheme, Reese steadily accelerated down the backwoods highway. 
He longed for a little company and switched on the radio for the comforting sound of human voices. A Country Boy Can Survive was playing on the country station, and both the words and rich voice of Hank Williams Jr. encouraged Reese, a red-blooded country boy himself, to keep going, keep driving, keep fighting. Reese was getting into the music and starting to relax, even enjoy himself a little. Then, suddenly, he hit The impact was exceptionally forceful. Reese felt and heard the crush of the truck's metal front grille and the shattering of the headlights. He was thrown forward violently and his body slammed painfully against the steering wheel. If he hadn't been wearing his seatbelt, his head probably would have gone straight through the windshield. A deer, he thought instantly. I hit a damn deer. Or maybe it had been a bear. Or even a moose. The front end of the truck was engulfed in smoke. Whatever he hit must have been bigger than a deer to have done such extensive damage. Trembling, Reese exited the cab to survey the destruction. Chills shot up his spine as soon as his feet hit the tarmac. There was no one around for miles, but the woods seemed to be alive with sounds. Guttural wails and clicks and sputters seemed to come from every direction, as if seeping out of the very tree trunks. A terrible thought suddenly struck Reese. Perhaps this was all a ploy, a trap set by the aliens. With fear welling up inside of him, Reese backed up. But then, out of the corner of his eye, he spotted a lump of brown fur lying still and lifeless in front of his truck. Whatever he had hit was some kind of animal. It definitely wasn't a menacing little green man or an invincible robotic soldier. Relief washed over Reese. Whatever he had hit was a creature of Earth, and that alone was enough to quell his tortured nerves. Damn critter, Reese thought as he stared at the dead beast. He couldn't help but feel a pang of pity for it, even though he was also indescribably annoyed. Hank would undoubtedly blame this latest mishap on Reese's supposedly questionable sanity. It was possible that this would be the incident that finally cost him his job. Maybe the aliens were behind this misfortune after all. Perhaps they had intentionally spooked this poor beast, provoking it to run out into the road and right into the grill of Reese's truck. I'd best see what it was, Reese thought. If it's going to cost me my job, I should at least know what the damn thing is. Reese walked over to the creature. If it turned out to be a buck, he intended to keep its antlers. He'd always admired taxidermy. Yet the creature was no buck. Its fur was brown and caked with both mud and blood. It didn't look like any animal he had ever seen before. It looked almost like an ape, maybe a Sasquatch. But it had a tail that seemed far too long for a primate. When he turned the corpse over, <gasps> Reese recoiled in horror. He had struck some kind of monster. Its dead eyes were still open, colored in a natural shade of red. Its nose was elongated, 
and it had rows and rows of yellowed, razor-sharp teeth. It didn't have hands. Instead, it had extended claws with five long and extremely sharp talons. Even though it was as big as a man, the creature looked just like a mole. The precise kind of monster that both Uncle Harland and the long-dead condemned miner had described. Panic consumed Reese. His stomach felt like it was full of lead and it was difficult to get air into his lungs. He started to move back toward the safety of the cab inside his ruined truck, but his legs were shaky and unreliable, causing him to stumble. Suddenly the wails and grumbles and growls got louder and louder. Branches snapped and leaves rustled as... Dozens of figures scurried out of the woods from every direction and descended upon Reese. Apparently the creatures traveled in packs. The grizzly beings were covered in thick and matted brown fur that was laced with mud. Their eyes glowed red. Their pointed teeth gleamed in the moonlight, illuminated by the saliva flowing from their open and snarling jaws. Claws dug into Reese's skin as the creatures took hold of him and hauled him, screaming and shrieking, into the woods toward the long-abandoned mines that are precious caves. As Reese was dragged first through the forest, then down the muddy tunnels by the vicious monstrosities, he had a revelation. Mole people, not aliens. They were the true threat, after all. And so we see how looking up can lead to a tremendous fall when what you should fear is from below. After one final word, it will be time to conclude our journey of despair. The Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. Become a patron today and you'll get the extended version of this show. Here's a sample of the extra stories you get when you become a member. As if to verify this hypothesis, Ethan turned a corner and was met by the dinosaur skeleton from Miss Ashby's class. Except this one wasn't a replica. It was vibrant neon green and very much alive. Become a member today. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash tour to get more horror than you can handle. Sadly, it is time to depart, but rest assured that we will find you again next week. Remember to subscribe and share us with everyone you know. Be sure to click the bell icon next to the subscriber button on YouTube to make sure you are getting the alert on each of our unsettling episodes. 
Also, we ask the courtesy of allowing our ads to play on YouTube videos and occasionally click on them to assert your simply scary viewership. Remember, fans, that you too can support original and independent content when you become a patron of our website at chillingtalesfordarknight.com forward slash tour and donate to our Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash chillingtales. Become a member and you will get the full uninterrupted version of this show along with frighteningly fantastic goodies you will get nowhere else. Alright, and then I screw the skull cap back on counterclockwise. Lefty Lucy, righty tidy. And she's as good as new. <laughs> well, let's just hope that mustard I spilled in there didn't hurt anything. Oh, wow. Oh, what hit me? Oh, hey, 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 what happened to my voice? You guys are in some serious. <laughs> Archibald? What on earth did you do that for? Sorry, guys, but she had that look in her eye. Uh, you better wrap it up, GM, before she wakes up again. This is GM Danielson, thanking you for joining us on the road. As we continue our journey to find the fiercest fear fodder we can, take your place at our side and bear witness to the masterfully macabre minds of today's most talented writers. (laughs) And until we meet again, we will leave you screaming for more. For you are just experiencing the Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review comments or questions email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information while you're there consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show copyright chilling entertainment llc 2017 thanks for listening Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.